From Gimlet, this is Startup. I'm Lisa Chow. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. I'm here with you, Lisa, in the studio, helping to open this show because of the way we came to today's story. Uh, It came to us through an ad that we did uh, on this podcast. You know, the way we do this, we have our sponsors and and we either talk to people who work in the companies or we talk to the customers of the companies. And this was one of those situations. I was given this guy, I was like, hey, he's a client of this company. Then I was like, oh my God, this guy's story is really interesting. It probably deserves more than just uh, the 10 seconds it can get in an ad spot. So I came to you and I said, you should check this guy out. Yes. And uh, he is very, very interesting. Um, So interesting that we've decided to do two parts on this guy. Uh, So this week and next week, we will be exploring his story. Yeah. His name is Cas Marte. And just one note before we begin, um, there is some swearing in this episode. I feel like we've been saying that a lot lately. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much every episode. Yes. Anyway, Lisa Chow, take it away. So a couple of weeks ago, I flew out to Las Vegas to meet Cas. So I'm going to read it just because to refresh my mind, and then, Jen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pitch you the pitch. Yeah, do you wanna? Pitch perfect. I'm standing with Koss and his girlfriend and co-founder Jen Shaw in their hotel room. It's the night before he'll take the stage to pitch his fitness startup. He's at a conference featuring impressive speakers like Chris Saka, you may have heard of him, and founders of companies like Zappos, Reddit, and Hopstop. Koss is one of six finalists, beating out 300 companies to be here. He'll present to a panel of judges, Shark Tank style, in front of several hundred people. He's been practicing the pitch, and things are not going well. We've been, we've, we've gained national, we've gained, we've gained press and part, we've gained national press and, and partnerships. What is it? National We've gained, we've gained world-class press and partnerships. Okay. Jen listens and gives feedback. Whew, that was rough. Though the same lines are sticking you up as have been sticking you up. Yeah. Same lines. It's the, I think the lines that are fucking me up is, um, like our run rate is 300,000. I want to say... We have a clientele base of six thousand, over six thousand people, and and our so and our current yeah, that. and our current run rate is over three hundred or oh, three hundred thousand um, dollars. Yeah. Oh, well, I think it definitely is time to like rewrite. Casa's dream, the dream he's here to pitch, is to become the next Soul Cycle, the next CrossFit, the next big name in the nearly thirty billion dollar fitness industry, and his dream comes with a social mission to employ a population that's known for tough workouts, but one that few companies want to hire. Ex-cons. Koss can usually count on his business standing out at pitch events like these because of his mission. But at this particular pitch competition, every company has a social mission. They're tackling the hardest problems. One company has created a backpack that can treat contaminated water, making it drinkable in 30 minutes. Another company has manufactured a solar-powered light and was featured on the real Shark Tank show. Mark Cuban invested $200,000 in them. Koss and Jen meet some of their competitors in person during a rehearsal in the auditorium where they'll be pitching. The other founders have impressive pedigrees. They went to elite colleges. They have careers in banking and finance, patents to their name. 
They're all dressed casually, wearing jeans, t-shirts, and hoodies. Koss and Jen are the only ones dressed up. Koss is in a dark gray suit. Jen's wearing heels and a black dress. Everyone's mingling. Koss and Jen start talking to a woman named Lydia from a company called Lucky Iron Fish, which is trying to rid the world of iron deficiency. Yeah. There's a good group of people here. This is pretty awesome. Yeah. Are you doing the pitch? I am, yeah. Awesome. It's just me, no other team members with me. My, my other team member is off uh, doing a pitch to Unilever and Ashoka right now in Cambridge. And then my other partner is doing a pitch to the Gates Foundation right now. So, yeah. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of conversations like these, people talking themselves up. After the rehearsal, Koss and Jen grab something to eat and debrief. Tell me, what was it like meeting the competition face to face? That was good. That was good. They're, they're people, and all white people. Koss is Dominican. Jen's white. Oh, there's a girl. Yeah, there's a girl. Hey, she's like a minority and a woman, which you don't have. This founder that Koss and Jen are talking about, she also has an Ivy League education. She's also a Columbia grad, like, I think, like, MBA grad. I graduated from, like, Rikers Island, like, School of Hard Knocks. Rikers Island, the Rikers Island where 10,000 inmates live, which has one of the highest rates of solitary confinement, named one of the worst jails in the country, and the inspiration behind Koss's fitness company, called Conbody. Koss has been in and out of jail since he was 13. Pitch competitions like the one Koss is preparing for are typical stops on a founder's path. But Koss's path to this stage has been anything but typical. Today on the show, how Koss got here and what a life of crime can teach you about your customers, your competitors, and your investors. Koss Marte went to prison because of his first business, which he started when he was a teenager living in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, this is actually the, the block where I sold drugs at and now where I sell fitness at. <laughs> It's true. If you walk out of the door of the space he's renting, turn left and go a couple of doors down, past a Buddhist temple, a window shop, you'll come to the spot where Koss first sold drugs, just in front of a small Chinese-Hispanic grocery store. Right there in that corner, I used to sit in a milk crate 24 hours a day, nonstop. Koss started using drugs when he was 11. He lived down the hall from some older cousins who'd smoke weed in front of him. It scared him, but he felt curious. So when they offered him some, he thought, I can hang. I'm cool. From then on, Koss and his cousins would smoke up, together on the roof. Koss also knew how to hustle at a young age. He collected aluminum cans and cashed them in for nickels. He stole baseball cards and sold them at school. By 13, he realized how much more he could make hustling drugs. I saw the money in it. I saw the guys that used to, like, deliver to me. I saw them, like, pulling out lots of cash. And I seen the guys, like, on the corner, like, big chains with the girls. And they're like, damn, that's what I want to do, you know? So I, uh, as a kid, people, you know, would ask me, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I would tell them I want to be rich. Koss started selling marijuana in his school. Then around the neighborhood, it was fast, easy money. Within a year, Koss was selling cocaine as well. 
because his customers were asking for it. And again, the returns were unfairly good. I took a, a eight ball. Uh, eight ball is uh, three and a half grams of cocaine. Bought it for 120 bucks at that time, and I made about like 350. So, yeah. So you like tripled your money. Yeah, I tripled my money, um, and it it went quick. Uh, and after a while, I it just got crazy from each side of the block. It was just like so many people running up to me, and I'm like just taking out bags of coke and just like delivering, like just like I was like a walking pharmacy. Like, I couldn't waste a minute without being there because time is money. I would even brush my teeth uh, with a quart of water, toothpaste, toothbrush, take it out, like, still on the corner. There was just so much money that I couldn't even, like, fold it together because I had to, like, just stick it in my pocket and stick it in my pocket because it was just nonstop. Koss was selling drugs in the early 2000s when a lot of the New York market was divided up by turf. Koss inherited his turf from a dealer who was trying to get out of the business. The guy was getting high on his own coke all the time and needed an out. So Koss took over the block. Koss knew another guy selling drugs in the neighborhood, a guy named Jose Lajave Jr., who went by Joey. People also called him the key because his last name means the key in Spanish and because he was a magician when it came to opening car doors. Joey was equally driven and had a way with customers. And Koss and Joey, they liked each other. So one day... They decided to join forces and take their business to the next level. But they didn't really know what they'd signed up for. I talked to Joey on the phone. We both took blind faith steps into trusting one another. And by the day, you've seen how this just gradually progressed into something really big. You know, we went from making a few hundred dollars to all of a sudden, just within a one-week, two-week period, three, four, five, six, seven thousand dollars a night. Their operation took off for a couple of reasons. When they first started, Koss and Joey were largely selling to friends, and friends of friends, people in the neighborhood. But they noticed something. The neighborhood was changing. There were more white people moving in, more suits. And they thought, what if we sold to them? But that meant changing things about their operation. For starters, they had to dress for a different clientele. I couldn't walk with, like, a white person next to me who looked more professional and I'm wearing like baggy jeans. I had like a triple XL t-shirt because it would look funny and I've been stopped before because of that. So I, I I decided to go shopping, get like suits and like ties and, you know, just look more professional and we were not getting stopped anymore. <laughs> really? You yeah. noticed that overnight? Oh uh, yeah, overnight. It was a double win to dress in suit and tie. It was better marketing for their new customers, but also... The cops just left them alone. Koss and Joey would stand out in front of a local bar in the Lower East Side called Happy Ending. It was a spot for a young party crowd to hang. Or, as Koss describes them, white hipsters. Koss and Joey made 10,000 business cards. The cards were black, with the name Happy Ending and three telephone numbers printed in white. They handed out these cards to everyone they met. That really blew up. There's just so many people going in there. The neighborhood started changing. Um, we were selling to like lawyers, doctors, judges. The Lower East Side was gentrifying. And like any business in a gentrifying area, Koss and Joey faced a question. Do you keep serving the customers you've always sold to, or do you chase the new, wealthier people moving in? Turns out, that wasn't a hard call for them. 
Joey told me they started focusing exclusively on their higher margin clients, people who could buy a $100 bag or more. We ended up revamping our whole little system and we eliminated the 20s and 50s and we said that we're just going to do a minimum because we had so many people calling us that it only made sense to weed and filter out the people that, you know, they didn't want to deal with with a quality service. That's what we were branding ourselves. We were trying to be the Louis Vuitton of, of what we were doing. We didn't want to deal with minorities or people of our kind because they complained, they knew the game, they knew the manipulation. So we were targeting people that were looking for quality service and our job was to entertain them. This is how Koss and Joey speak about race, bluntly in sweeping generalizations. But alongside that, they gave careful thought to which types of people they would pursue. For example, they discovered a much more enthusiastic customer in New York than the typical Lower East Side hipster. They discovered Australians. What I noticed from dealing with Australians, they were telling me that the price of what they were purchasing from us was, in their country, anywhere from 250 to 350 a gram. Now, we all know that Australia is a continent, but it pretty much is like an island. There's no pipeline or anything that goes over there. So when they would come over here, to them, even though we was charging an outlandish amount of money for what we had, to them, that was like a deal. And they loved our charismatic ways and how we would hang out with them. And we was always ready to, you know, we was always at their beck and call. We was always there. It don't matter the time. So we ended up building a very great rapport with these people that everybody that was coming from Australia or that was in their circle, they just kept referring everybody. Talking to Joey and Koss, what's striking is that the issues they faced as a fast-growing drug business sound similar to the issues faced by any early-stage startup. Their initial success came by word of mouth, and they had to be scrappy when it came to growing their customer base. But being an underground business forced them to get even more creative with how they marketed themselves. For example, when Mayor Bloomberg banned smoking in restaurants and clubs in 2003, Joey saw a big opportunity with the party crowd. These people would come out to smoke, I would get extra cigarettes, and a lot of times these people would come outside with no cigarettes and be like, hey, buddy, what's up? Um, do you mind if I buy a cigarette? And I'll be like, no, here, take it. And I'll engage in conversation, and I might say something uh, to the effects of, I try to do current event stuff, so I was big on trying to talk about a topic of the day, or it might be sports, or I don't know, something to get their attention. I'll just go in to draw them in and I'll pop the question about, hey, listen, buddy, if you're looking for any party services, you know, I got blow. Uh, that's what I would say just in case if they try to, if they were a cop or something, they'll be like, but you said blow. And I would say something, yeah, I was talking about that I'll blow you. Like, basically, I wasn't offering drugs. I was offering a sexual favor. <laughs> right. So. Isn't that illegal too? It is, but I would rather take the lesser of the two evils. These conversations with people on the street helped Joey and Koss get the word out. And pretty soon, their operations had grown well beyond the Lower East Side. They had built a delivery service that reached customers in every borough of New York. People would call or text, and a guy would come to their door with their drug of choice. And this was 2005, still a couple of years before the first iPhone was released. Koss and Joey started selling on foot, then bike, then moped, 
Now they drove BMWs. But that didn't mean life was easy. They found themselves facing a typical founder's dilemma. You know, I had a life, but I really didn't have a life. Because everything was dependent on always dealing with the service. I was working like 72 hours straight, no sleep. And then I would go home and sleep for like 20 hours and then wake up and stay up for three more days. And this was not, I was not on drugs. This was like all motivation, staying up because of money. This lifestyle, it wasn't sustainable. Koss was putting on a lot of weight. He was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. He and Joey realized they needed help. They had to start hiring people. But with their richer clientele, Joey says they didn't want to recruit the kids who would normally jump at the chance to sell drugs. I always would sit down with course and strategize, and we would be like, I don't know if this is going to be a good fit. Because a lot of people just weren't able to articulate themselves the way me and course could. You don't have to have the best vocabulary skills, but you got to be able to rub shoulders with these people in the right way. They might not want you to go to their condo where they live. You got to look the part. They ended up hiring older guys, Puerto Rican guys in their 40s and 50s, who lived uptown in Spanish Harlem. Koss and Joey looked for people who didn't have criminal records because they'd be less likely to snitch if they got caught. And the system would be more lenient on them. Koss and Joey made sure to send people out with no more than 12 grams of coke so that if they did get jammed up, they'd be charged with a lower-level felony. By the time Koss was 23 and Joey was 26, their revenues had grown to almost $4 million a year. And they were employing more than 20 people. They were delivering across all five New York boroughs, the Hamptons, and the greater tri-state area. And with the margins on marijuana cocaine being so high, about three to four times the wholesale price, a lot of that money was theirs. Koss and Joey weren't paying taxes on any of it. And the way they paid their staff, employees would get a little more than 15% of everything they'd sell. Koss and Joey felt like they were on top of the world. And they acted like it, too. We bought a 1993 Fleetwood Cadillac, which was like a boat with 22-inch gold rims, pearl white seats, the loudest music system ever. Uh, And we just started wearing mink coats, and we were bugging out. We were like right down 42nd Street, blasting like porn. One time, Koss and Joey rented a horse and carriage from Central Park. They basically paid the driver $2,000 to break the rules and take them to the Lower East Side so they could deliver their drugs. The streets that we were going down, people were actually calling. It was like, so what what car are you in? Like, you're not going to believe this, but we're on a horse and carriage. Don't worry, just I'm going to hop out real quick, make the transaction. I'm like, are you kidding me, Jose? You're on a horse and carriage? And then as soon as I pull up, they're like... Oh my God, you guys are fucking amazing. I felt like I was the president or something. I don't know. I felt like important. You know, a lot of people looked up to us, especially the the people that grew up in our neighborhoods. Like we'd go in there and they'd be like, yo, I want to be like these guys, you know? I mean, it gives you a sense of like you made it. Coming up. At a pivotal moment in the life of his business, Koss decides that he has to get high on his own supply. That's after these words from our sponsors. 
Welcome back to Startup. I'm Lisa Chow. When we left off, the business was going well, really well. Almost 10 years into selling drugs, costs had advanced from his days selling on the corner. Now the business was operating from four different apartments. He'd hired a fleet of drivers and dealers. They had their systems down. And one other thing was different from the early days. It just stopped being fun. Mm. It, became, it felt like a job. It felt like I was incarcerated to this lifestyle. This lifestyle that I, I actually wanted to escape. I don't know. It was not like the startup lifestyle, you know. It became more of like a, like a corporate, it felt like, you know. Like you showing up to work, you know. It's like you're sitting on this desk and it just became boring. Koss considered getting out of the business. His family had wanted him to quit from day one. They were tired of constantly bailing him out of jail, worrying about his safety, watching him squander so much potential. And they knew he didn't need to chase this lifestyle. Koss has three siblings, two older sisters and a younger brother. The four of them shared a bedroom growing up. And the siblings, they've all taken a very different path than Koss. One sister, Claudia, works as an underwriter at an insurance company. The oldest sister, Carolina, spent 10 years rising up the ranks to become an executive director at one of the most prestigious firms on Wall Street, Goldman Sachs. And the younger brother, Christopher, he was a model student. At about the same age, when Koss started selling drugs, 13 or 14, Christopher started winning scholarships to study abroad. He spent a summer in Japan, then a summer in Hungary. He went on to be president of his high school class and captain of multiple teams. Growing up, Christopher idolized Koss. But things changed when Christopher learned that Koss was selling drugs. I had no idea he was doing it um, until one day me and him were walking in the park. I think he was 13 and I was around eight years old. And the undercover cops arrested him. And like me as an eight-year-old, I'm like, that's my brother. You know, I'm, I was actually wearing a dare shirt, you know, like the drug, whatever. So I was... Uh, you remember that? You remember when? Yeah, yeah, I remember that clearly. And I think they, they gave Koss a warning. You know, they called their parents. Um, but I think that was the moment where I realized that he was going down a bad path. Um, and so little by little, he just pretty much started disappearing out of my life. Um, you know, he'll leave two weeks without contact, come back and like pass out for 48 hours, leave again. And I knew he wasn't doing the right thing. I mean, like you could see it through my mom's, you know, emotions. That's why I didn't go down that path. Their family immigrated from the Dominican Republic. Their mom worked in a sewing factory and their dad was a cook. Christopher says Koss always wanted stuff their parents couldn't afford. He remembers Koss posting photos of cell phones on his wall next to his bed, photos he ripped out of Radio Shack catalogs. As Koss got more wrapped up in the drug scene, material things became more important to him, and his relationship with his family suffered. Here's Christopher. I reached a point, especially in high school, where I never even mentioned I had a brother. Um, I still have friends today that are like, dude, you have a brother? Um, just because I knew... I would say, I have two sisters and one brother, and someone asked me, oh, what does your brother do? And I didn't want to say, oh, you know, he's in prison or he sells drugs. So when people, when people would ask you, like, do you have siblings, what would you say? I have two sisters. You know? Um, wow. And, yeah, it was just like, it's easy, forgettable. And, Did you ever feel guilty? Um, no. I mean, sometimes a little bit. 
but it's just he put it on himself. That's how I always saw it. It's just like you know, you gave him opportunities, and and I don't know. It's like you have to, you have to. It's kind of like not a reward, but you have to make yourself be my brother. Yeah, I guess by blood you're always my brother, but I don't always have to say it. You know, like I don't care if my brother is a janitor or a sanitation, like anything, cleaning toilets. That's fine. But if you like causing harm and having the past that he had, then I don't. At that point, I didn't want him to be my brother. It was easy for Koss to forget about his family's disappointment when he was at work. He was young, respected, rich, and focused on running his multi-million-dollar business. But then something went wrong. Koss and Joey had hired a full-time dispatcher put him up in an apartment on the Upper West Side, and paid him two grand a week. Two years into this guy's employment, he started skimming business from them, making sales on the side. And some of those sales, it turned out, were to undercover cops, who started tracking the phone line. One night, Koss started seeing orders piling up. Forty-some customers were waiting on their drugs. And he called his guys, and no one was picking up their phones. So he decided to make the deliveries himself, he drove up to their stash house in the Hunts Point neighborhood of the Bronx, picked up 100 bags of cocaine, and was about to get into his car. Uh, this white guy, you can see white people up there, but uh, he said my full government name. He said, Cos Marte, and I turned around, and he was like, this is Detective Joseph King. Your whole operation is over. And I'm like, what? Cos says a bunch of police officers tackled him down. They had a warrant for the house. They went inside and they took costs upstairs. They asked me, they was like, where's the stuff? We don't want to break the, anything in the house. And I was like, I don't have anything in the house. Um, and it was like, oh, don't lie to us. We know where it is. So I had uh, about 300 pairs of Jordan sneakers on by the wall. And they went directly to that box where I had like a kilo and a half. Um, and they opened it up. They was like, we know everything. Apparently, the police had interrogated one of Koss's drivers for 12 hours earlier that day. They arrested Koss and drove him to a police station downtown. And when I start walking in, they start applauding. Like, they took down, like, a huge guy, and I'm like, what the hell's going on? Um, I see the guys that, you know, work for me. They were all in each different holding cell. Uh, and I'm in that cell, and I'm like, just like, shit. The police took his wallet, cleared out all his bank cards, his credit cards, and then they returned it, not knowing what they had just given him. My wallet, I had like 10 acid tabs, uh, LSD, and they didn't know because it's like paper blocked, and I take all 10 acid tabs, and uh, I'm in this precinct and then I just start tripping balls uh, and I see like the gates opening and like swerving and then they take me to the interrogation room where they already have like a secret indictment the district attorney is in there and they're trying to like talk to me and I'm just laughing and it was like you know you're facing you know 12 to 24 and you might be doing life because it's your first, third felony and I was like Give me 24 years, let all my friends go, like, fuck you. And 
that was it. You know, I went inside. I was like tripping for like probably twelve hours, and then a reality hit me, and I was like, "Shit, you know, it's it's really over." Casa's case was considered one of the biggest busts of 2009 for New York City's Special Narcotics Investigation Division. On its website, it reads, quote, Ringleader Koss Marte gave customers business cards printed with his phone number and sent text messages to customers to announce weekly cocaine specials. Eight defendants were apprehended on one night in May, including four delivery people who had just made sales to undercover officers, unquote. Joey was arrested in another case in 2011 and is still in prison, serving a nine-year sentence. Koss had gotten locked up before, but this time, things were different. For one, Koss had a kid now, who was a year old. And second, the penalty would be a lot more serious because of the amount of cocaine the police found on Koss and in his apartment. Koss didn't end up getting 12 to 24 years, right before sentencing, then New York Governor David Patterson, who'd just taken over from Elliot Spitzer after his prostitution scandal, repealed the mandatory minimum sentencing laws for drug felons. Koss was sentenced to seven years in prison, and he says he felt lucky. But whatever he was feeling, the people at his sentencing, like Christopher, didn't see it. Me and my dad actually went to the court case um, that, where he got sentenced. And... Uh, I, it was, I don't know how to describe it, but like looking at him, he had just a stone cold face with no emotion. He wasn't really human. Um, he was just like, whatever. And me and my dad, we were just sitting there in the back and just like, all right, this is, I guess this is where he's going to be for the next seven years. In prison, things did not go well for Koss. When he first arrived, Doctors gave him a physical. They said all his extra weight was putting him at severe risk for a heart attack. If something didn't change, he would die in prison. He had lost his business, his lifestyle. He was far from home. It was about as low a point as you could imagine. And then things got worse. He was put in solitary confinement. Koss told me how it happened. He was waiting to take a random drug test. The officer on duty said, I'm in a bad mood. Don't fuck with me and clapped Koss on the back of the head. Koss's glasses flew off, and when he crouched down to pick them up, the officer thought Koss was bending down to charge him. The officer sounded an alarm, and a bunch of guards tackled Koss to the ground. For 30 days that summer, Koss was in the box. Then it was 100, over 100 degrees, so it's just like super scorching. And then like we had like the June bugs, because they leave the light on the whole time. So I had like these buzzing bugs. There was like probably a hundred of them crawling like under my cell door and flying over my head. I couldn't sleep. It was just like, and I would just like kill one and just a thousand more would come. You know, it was just annoying. Bugs crawling all over my bed and I'm like basically naked because I couldn't put clothes on because it was just so hot. But it was here in this place when things started to change. When Koss came up with the idea for his next business, what happened in that prison cell and what his idea became, that's in the next episode of Startup. Coming up, we'll have scenes from the next episode of Startup and an update about a previous episode after these words from our sponsors. 
in next week's episode of Startup. When you're an ex-con in a business that employs other ex-cons, where do you draw the line when it comes to hiring? So sex offenders you wouldn't hire? No. Someone who's charged with murder? Yeah. I would. Really? Yeah. I've met so many guys that have committed murder and, you know, that I would be willing to hire within a second. That's coming up next week. One more thing. In our last episode, we heard two founders of an on-demand food company called Bento working out their company's problems in real time. There's been a development since that episode aired. You can find out more on our website, gimletmedia.com startup. Go to last week's episode, and you'll find an update in the show notes. Today's episode of Startup was edited by Alex Bloomberg, Peter Clowney, Caitlin Roberts, Molly Messick, Bruce Wallace, Luke Malone, Simone Palanin, and Eric Eddings. Mark Phillips wrote and performed our theme song. Build Buildings wrote and performed our special ad music. Additional music from the band hotmoms.gov. Matthew Boll mixed the episode. To subscribe to the podcast, go to iTunes or check out the Gimlet Media website, gimletmedia.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast Startup. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.